0: Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question?
1: Now is a perfect time. What if I did the
0: opposite?
2: I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal
3: endoskeleton.
4: Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to a very exciting edition of The Tim Ferriss Show. This is an in between episode, and that means that the format is a little weird. It's not a long form interview, but it's a very, very important announcement. This is something I've been working on for around a year and a half very intensely, and something diligent scientists have been working toward for 20 plus years, multiple decades. This episode features a recording of a press conference that I did last week announcing the launch of the world's largest psychedelic research center and the first psychedelic research center in the U.S. It is called the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, or research, if you prefer, at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Among other things, they'll be investigating the effectiveness of psychedelics as a new therapy for opioid addiction, Alzheimer's disease, specifically the depression that often accompanies Alzheimer's disease, but they'll be looking at secondary outcomes, which will track cognitive effects, which is of great interest to me. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, formerly known as chronic Lyme disease, anorexia nervosa, which has the highest mortality rate, i.e. fatality rate of any psychiatric disorder, and alcohol use in people with major depression. The researchers hope to create precision medicine tailored to individual Patients' specific needs. It's super exciting. I couldn't be happier, and it wouldn't have happened without generous support from Stephen and Alexandra Cohen at Cohen Give, C O H E N G I V E on Twitter, Matt Mullenweg, at Photomat, M A T T on Twitter, Blake Mycosky at Blake Mycosky, M Y C O S K I E on Twitter, and Craig Narenberg. Many thanks also to Benedict Carey of the New York Times for investigating and reporting on this from multiple perspectives, as he's done for many, many years. He is at Ben Carey NYT, C-A-R-E-Y NYT on Twitter. As some of you know, I shifted most of my focus from startup investing to this field around 2015. And it's incredibly important to me that this watershed announcement helps to catalyze more studies, more ambitious centers, more scientists entering the field, and more philanthropists and sources of funding taking a really close look at psychedelic science. To that end, it's critical that more people realize there is much more reputational upside, much more reputational reward than reputational risk in supporting this important work in 2019 and beyond. And my hope is to broadcast this as widely as possible. And uh, there are a few different ways to do that. One is to share the New York Times pieces that have come out. And there are a few different New York Times pieces that have come out covering this. One of them can be found at tim.blog forward slash NYT or New York Times spelled however you want. We'll forward to one article. So I would sincerely ask that if you're interested in this space, or if you find value in exploring this space, which I think holds the potential to treat what are considered untreatable or intractable conditions, then please share that URL and the announcement itself. I'm joined in the press conference with Dr. Roland Griffiths, and you'll hear intros later, so I'm not going to get into it right now, but Dr. Roland Griffiths, who's incredible, Dr. Matthew Johnson, who's incredible, and then also Audrey Huang, PhD, who is the moderator. And I will keep it short for now. A couple of time markers. Uh, This is maybe a little drier than some of my interviews that bounce around and can be very kind of fun loving. This one's pretty serious, but a couple of time markers. So if you want to skip the initial introductory remarks, you can jump to about four minutes and 30 seconds from when this intro ends. If you want to go directly to my comments, if you're interested in why I would focus so much on this space, my my personal reasons, my kind of macro level, big picture reasons, you can jump to about 11 minutes and 10 seconds after I stop talking in this intro. And then if you wanna get straight to the Q and A where we're fielding questions from people in attendance, then you can go to 15 minutes and 30 seconds after I stop talking. So without further ado, please enjoy this incredibly important, incredibly exciting announcement of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research.
5: Welcome everybody, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Dr. Audrey Huang. I am Director of Media Relations at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Today, we're announcing a new research center at Johns Hopkins, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Joining us today are Dr. Roland Griffiths, Dr. Matthew Johnson, and Mr. Tim Ferriss. Dr. Roland Griffiths is a professor of behavioral biology in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral sciences and neuroscience here at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And he is founding director of this new center. Dr. Griffiths is one of the nation's leading psychopharmacologists whose research focuses on better understanding the effects of mood-altering drugs. He directs the Psilocybin Research Initiative here at Johns Hopkins, which has run many studies over the years, including examining the mystical experience imparted by psychedelics on healthy people and how psychedelics might decrease depression and anxiety. Psilocybin, the active compound found in so-called magic mushrooms or shrooms, for those more familiar, will be one focus of the new center. It was first purified and then made synthetically in the 1950s. At the time, psilocybin was legal and was among the psychedelics that rose to the center of the 1960s counterculture. In 1971, however, with the signing of the Convention on Psychotropic Substances Treaty of the United Nations, psilocybin was listed in the United States as a Schedule I drug, defined as having no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. It was because of Dr. Griffith's leadership that Johns Hopkins was able to gain regulatory approval in the year 2000 to reinitiate studies that help us better understand the effects of psychedelic drugs in healthy people. And now, nearly 20 years later, we're dramatically expanding the testing of psilocybin as therapy for serious health conditions, including major depression. To his left, we have Dr. Matthew Johnson, an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the associate director of the new center. Dr. Johnson is an experimental psychologist and an expert on psychoactive drugs and in psychology of addiction and risk behavior. An underlying theme of Dr. Johnson's career has been to understand and facilitate human behavioral change, particularly that which is fundamental to addiction recovery. Dr. Johnson also studies the behavioral and psychological effects of psychoactive drugs. He was lead author on the safety guidelines for human psychedelic research in 2008, which has helped to more safely usher in a new era of psychedelic research. Doctors Johnson and Griffiths together have studied the use of psilocybin in the treatment of tobacco addiction, in treating depression and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer, and in combination with meditation and other spiritual practices in generating positive psychological functioning. And on the end there, we welcome Mr. Tim Ferriss, one of the philanthropists who is making possible this Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Mr. Ferris has been listed as one of Fast Company's most innovative business people and, a number of years ago, one of Fortune's 40 under 40. He is an early stage technology investor and advisor and has been involved with numerous startups, including Uber, Facebook, Shopify, Duolingo, among many others. Mr. Ferris has authored five number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling books, including The Four-Hour Workweek and Tools of Titans: The Tactics and Routines and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World Class Performers. The Observer and other media have called him the Oprah of audio due to the influence he has had with the Tim Ferriss Show podcast, the first business interview podcast to exceed 100 million downloads, which I'm sure now is at a much higher number. Thank you all for joining us today. So why don't you each say a few words about this new center and then we'll open it up to questions. Dr. Griffiths, would you like to start?
3: Yes, uh, thank you, Audrey. So we're very pleased to announce the establishment of this Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, which we believe to be the first such center in the United States and the largest in the world. Psychedelics are a fascinating class of compounds. They produce a unique and profound change of consciousness over the course of just several hours. For almost 20 years, we've been investigating the effects of psilocybin, which is the naturally occurring psychedelic found in the so-called magic mushrooms. And we've done so in studies with more than 350 participants and healthy volunteers. Remarkably, even months after study completion, roughly 80% of participants have rated their psilocybin experience to be among the most personally meaningful experiences of their entire lives on par with the birth of a firstborn child or death of a parent. The establishment of this center will build on our past research that's demonstrated the therapeutic effects of psilocybin in people suffering from a range of challenging conditions, including studies we've conducted in anxiety and depression in cancer patients, nicotine addiction, and debilitating depression disorder. The center will also allow us to expand this research on psychedelics to develop new treatments for a wider variety of psychiatric and behavioral disorders. And Matt will be telling you some about this next. In addition, the center is going to allow us to extend our past research and healthy volunteers to now investigate the effects of these compounds on creativity and well-being with an ultimate aspiration of opening new ways to support human thriving. I want to express my gratitude to the many research participants and patients who over the years have volunteered their time and without whom we wouldn't have been able to advance this work. I also want to thank our funders. So the center is launching with $17 million in support from the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen foundation and private philanthropist, Tim Ferris, who's with us today, uh, Matt Mullenweg, co-founder of WordPress, uh, Blake Makowski, the uh, founder of Tom's, a shoe and accessory brand, and investor Craig Nuremberg. This funding will support a program of psychedelic research for five years and includes positions for six faculty member neuroscientists, experimental psychologists, and clinicians, as well as five postdoctoral scientists. The stable funding provided by the center will allow a quantum leap in psychedelic research, as well as the ability to train a new generation of graduate and medical students who want to pursue careers in psychedelic science.
5: That is so exciting, Dr. Griffiths. Thank you. Dr. Johnson, would you like to say a few things? Sure. Thanks, Audrey. I'd like to talk
1: about the new clinical studies that we plan to do in our new center. We plan to focus on how psychedelics affect behavior, brain function, learning and memory, the brain's biology, and mood. We plan to explore the mechanisms by which psychedelics can contribute to general wellness. Our past research has demonstrated therapeutic benefits in people who suffer from depression and anxiety caused by cancer. This study has paved the way for our ongoing study that tests psilocybin as a potential treatment for major depression in people without cancer. I've led our past and present work using psilocybin to treat nicotine addiction, and results so far have been wildly successful. After two and a half years on average, 60% of our participants remained smoke-free, which appears to be more effective than all other available treatments. This then laid a foundation for the next two trials I'll lead in the new center, one looking into psilocybin as a treatment for opioid addiction, and the other for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Our colleague Fred Barrett will lead the trial for treating alcohol abuse in people with major depression. He'll also continue his brain imaging studies to determine how psilocybin affects the brain's activity. Fred also plans to identify genetic and other biomarkers in the blood that can predict the brain's response to psychedelics. Dr. Albert Garcia-Romeo will lead two clinical uh, studies. The first trial will test psilocybin in treating anxiety and depression in people with Alzheimer's disease. This study will be in partnership with the Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center at Johns Hopkins Medicine. AL's second trial will partner with the Johns Hopkins Lyme Disease Research Center to treat emotional and behavioral symptoms of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, what was formerly known as chronic Lyme disease. Dr. Natalie Gukasian will lead the study using psychedelics as a therapy for anorexia nervosa. This study partners with the Johns Hopkins Eating Disorders Program. And finally, Roland will lead two fascinating studies, not focused on treating illness, but exploring the betterment of well people. One study will examine the effects of microdosing, or taking extremely small doses of psilocybin. And the other study will examine the effects of psilocybin on creativity. Overall, I see psychedelics as a paradigm-shifting game-changer in the treatment of mental health disorders and as tools for understanding the brain's connection to mind and behavior. Our nation is experiencing an absolute crisis in mental health, with depression and addiction causing staggering numbers of deaths. We need to follow the data on psychedelics, but the funding of this center will allow us to actually produce those data permitting us to cautiously bring the power of psychedelics to bear on mental health. So I'm extremely grateful to the center funders for making this possible. After Tim speaks, Roland and I are happy to answer questions about
5: these studies too. Fantastic, thank you, Dr. Johnson. And let's hear from the funders. Mr. Ferris, can you tell us a little bit about your motivation for helping us launch the center?
4: I can. It's a real honor to be involved. And the, the motivations are multiple. And I'll start with the personal and then we'll zoom out and look at uh, the, the, the data, so to speak, and the macro level case. So, on a personal level, I have, for instance, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's on both sides of my family. I have major depressive disorder and treatment resistant depression on both sides of my family. And as it relates to uh, opioids, I've seen my best friend growing up on Long Island die of fentanyl overdose. My aunt died of Percocet plus alcohol last year, and uh, that's my, my personal experience with, uh, with, with a number of these conditions, which are largely thought to be intractable or have very few treatment options. On the, on the macro level, I really look at it the same way that I would look at investing in startups or businesses. And I stopped doing that in 2015 to push all my chips into this. And it's it's not my first time at the scientific rodeo. I've funded other types of scientific studies. But if, if you look at the criteria I would use, so let's just say if this were for-profit, and I don't have any for-profit bets in the, in the space, but I would be looking for a large market, I would be looking for an uncrowded bet, and I would be looking for a clear path to progress. Well, it just so happens that if you're looking at, say, effective altruism, you have more or less the exact same checkboxes. You have an important problem, so we were just talking about the prevalence of many of these issues. As one example, we have roughly 20 veterans per day who commit suicide in the United States. We lose more at home than at war. Many of those involve opioid addiction uh, and or depression, PTSD certainly. And uh, therefore, the, the, the market size is large. You just have to open any newspaper to see that, certainly as it relates to opioids, as one example. Then you have uncrowded bet. This this entire field has been largely neglected in the sense that there's been a a near complete lack of federal funding. Uh, So so that's exciting to me in the sense that you can get a hugely disproportionate uh, outcome, uh, not to say confirming or disconfirming, but you you can have a large impact with a relatively small amount of capital. I mean, with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or single-digit millions, you can have a huge impact, and that reminds me of uh, a number of people I've studied uh, as models for this type of philanthropic giving to science, including Catherine McCormick, who uh, may not be familiar to most folks, but she uh, almost single-handedly helped fund the development of oral contraceptives, and she did that after it had been dropped. Uh, by a for-profit company that didn't see profit in sight. And she, over the course of several years, with I believe a biochemist named Je- uh, Gregory Pincus, put in $2 million. So that's, you know I'm putting in between two and three here. And in today's dollars, that's roughly 23. So there's a comparable, right? We have 17, 23, and uh, it was initially approved, as, as I understand it, for menstrual disorders, and then additional applications came in, or indications. And that fundamentally bent the arc of history in a positive way. And looking at the data, looking at the results, the rapid onset, the duration of effect, uh, as Matt said, even though it's an overused expression, I mean, this, this truly could be paradigm shifting uh, and lend to not just a better understanding of these conditions, but the mind itself and consciousness. Uh, and then I would say, you know, last, tractable. Right? Is there a clear path to progress? Yes, you have one of the most productive teams in the world. Uh, who now with multi-year salary support can get incredible economies of scale with sharing resources across different studies and you can unlock their full productive potential. Um, So I hope that this will also act as a proof point that people in the field can increase the level of ambition that they have to hopefully uh, also bring in an entire new wave of scientists who want to pursue this as a career. So those are a few of the reasons why
5: I'm uh, exceptionally excited and uh, committed to this. Amazing, thank you so much. So let's take some questions, shall we? Why don't we start with a question that we collected earlier to Doctors um, Griffiths and Johnson. So you have an impressive lineup of studies that you'd like to do, ranging from anorexia nervosa to PTSD to post-treatment Lyme. They seem so wide ranging. what What is the evidence that psilocybin is going to help such a vast group of conditions?
3: well, we we don't know, but we're very hopeful that psilocybin offers this opportunity for a transdiagnostic intervention. So what we know is from our studies with healthy volunteers and some of our patient populations, that a single or a couple of sessions with psilocybin uh, produce enduring positive changes be it in reduction of addiction or reduction of anxiety or increased well-being in healthy volunteers. So this doesn't fit into any classic therapeutic model at least in psychopharmacology where you have a, a, a specific receptor target aimed at a, a, a very specific disease entity and the the potential promise here is to uh, start with depression and some of these very defined conditions, and then explore the generality of this effect. It, it's unknown, but it's a very exciting prospect.
1: And I'll I'll add that I really see psychedelics as inducing a mental and behavioral plasticity. So people should kind of look at these all these disorders we're looking into and think, okay, does this sound like snake oil? You know, how could it? potentially treat this wide range of disorders. And as Roland said, we need to look at each one carefully, so we're gonna be data-driven the entire way. But the exciting thing is there's evidence for these nominally different classes of disorders, depression, addiction, and addiction to different types of drugs. And that's the, the really exciting thing. And I really think of all these different disorders, whether it's depression in cancer or without cancer, addiction to this or addiction to that, as addictions broadly defined, a a way of being stuck about a certain way of thinking about yourself and the world. The mind and behavior are stuck in a rut and psychedelics are a powerful way to blast people out
5: of that that can have a lasting effect. That's amazing. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, Kayla, do we have any questions? Our question comes from
0: Christopher Wanjak with Live Science. Please go ahead. Uh,
2: Yes, hi, I'm wondering what lessons he might have learned from the 50s and 60s? It's kind of like here we go again. I mean, what did Timothy Leary do wrong? Um, what? Why was it made illegal in 1970s that the whole world came together and questioned the uh, practicality of this natural substance?
1: Sure. I mean, this this field is chock full of lessons from the past, and we've been studying those lessons for a couple decades here and taking them very seriously. One these substances do have risks and none of our research should encourage, you know, do it yourself at home. And one of Leary's um, mistakes, he did some brilliant research too, but one of his mistakes is more widely encouraging use. So that's something we've never done and never planned to do. And you know, one is a what, another was a lack of uh, being very clear about what the risks are. Um, Fortunately, the classic psychedelics like psilocybin aren't drugs of addiction, but they can be abused which is to mean used in a dangerous way. They can cause lasting harm in people with schizophrenia and disorders like that. The bad trip can happen in anyone. A panic reaction essentially that can lead to to harm, especially in an unsupervised environment. Sometimes in, in recreational use, never in research interestingly, but in recreational use you see lasting perceptual um harms, pretty rare, but it, it shows up. Um, so fortunately we can mitigate all of those risks in research, we could squarely screen and monitor and follow up with people to make sure we absolutely minimize those. So that that's really the strongest lesson for me. It's like we have to study the good, the bad, the ugly and, you know, call it out. You know, these aren't for everyone, there are risks.
3: If, if I can just add to that. So when we initiated our our research program, it was unknown to us what the, the real risk profile was. Um, we had uh, read the literature, but uh, none of us were uh, proponents. And, and frankly, for, for myself, I became astonished at the therapeutic potential. So we have been data-driven uh, through empirical studies, and we were very interested in adverse events, and we've done a lot of work on challenging so-called uh, bad effects, which, of which there are uh, a number and they're substantial. But So we're very focused on that, and then we're very focused on, uh, could we administer these compounds safely, reliably to produce effects? And I think we've shown, shown that, and as Matt says, we're gonna be data-driven on this, uh, but I think there's a, a, a opportunity here to rewrite the cultural narrative that was so skewed by uh, the events of the 1960, which had some peculiar historical uh, antecedents.
5: We have a question uh, via Twitter from Chris Leatherby. Does transdiagnostic efficacy force us to revise our conception and taxonomy of mental disorder? And if so, how?
3: Dr. Well, Griffiths, well, it, th- uh, that's a, a great question, and and I think very very possibly it may. Uh, so, uh, the very fact that there can be interventions that cut across these different diagnostic categories uh, suggests that they uh, uh, they shouldn't be uh, uh, viewed as as uh, as as narrow domains, but they're interconnected in some way that we don't fully understand, but we're committed to understanding uh, the basic neuroscience and the resulting psychology and psychological changes uh, that occur with administration of these compounds in ways that profoundly alter human uh, research attitudes, moods, and behaviors in very positive directions.
1: And, and I'll add to that. Um, this is not inconsistent with the direction of, of science outside of psychedelics. In fact, a number of years ago, the National Institute on Mental Health dropped the psychiatric bible, or the DSM, as being required um, uh, for being a part of their, you know, the, 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 the research that they're funding. And the rationale was that really, unlike every other area of medicine, the the psychiatric bible or DSM is largely descriptive. These nominally different disorders may, may not be different. And in fact, you see huge overlap. Comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. And so I view psychedelics as one of the most powerful tools to actually Um, investigate this idea that there are more fundamental underlying commonalities, both in terms of the neuroscience and in terms of the behavior. Um, So, again, we're going to be data-driven the whole way, but we we hope this could actually inform the scientific conversation about the nature of mental disorders broadly, completely outside of psychedelics themselves. Excellent. Uh, Kayla, do we have any questions from our callers?
0: Our next question comes from lineup Olivia Goldhill with Quartz. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I have two questions. Um, first of all, are you able to provide a breakdown um, of which donor gave which amount? And secondly, in terms of the research, um, is there any particular condition that you think you might focus on for a bigger study or for kind of gearing up to eventually, if the results go well, get FDA approval for treatment? And if so, which? Um, And is that I believe Alzheimer's and Lyme disease are fairly new conditions for psilocybin treatment, so what's the reasoning behind um, those conditions?
5: Okay, so why don't we start with the first one. Mr. Ferris, do you want to tackle the uh, dollar amounts? The dollar
4: amounts. Uh, I, I actually couldn't make the breakdown out the
5: of who gave how much.
4: Oh, I think that would require the buy in of, of all funders. I can say that you know, personally, I can speak for myself. Uh, speaking for myself, I would just say that I would not have felt comfortable uh, assembling some of the funders who were brought in to help support the center without having a lot of personal skin in the game. So this is the largest, I put in between two and three million, and that for me represents the largest financial commitment I have ever made to anything for-profit or non-profit. So that is non-trivial for me yeah. and required a very careful examination of the team, the data, uh, the risk profile both for the compounds themselves but also for the entire center itself which required looking back at the lessons from the past. The cultural differences, what were primarily politically driven decisions versus scientific decisions, the way that study design has changed, placebo control, for instance, and so on. Um, so the the short answer is, uh, I can only speak for myself because I would want to get permission from everybody else to, to share the the split. But the the weight is pretty uh, evenly distributed, I would say, um, in in some respects. I mean the uh, the uh, The uh, Stephen Alexandra Cohen Foundation came in with with quite a a, a large portion of that, and then the remainder is pretty evenly split. So I'll leave it at that for now. Fair enough.
5: Um, And then the second part of the question was, is there any particular study of the many that you're doing that's maybe you're more hopeful about leading to eventual FDA approval?
3: So so I think uh, uh, the lead indication right now for FDA approval of psilocybin is either treatment-resistant depression or major depressive illness. And there are two entities that are moving forward with FDA trials that if if they turn out successful could result in medical approval of, of psilocybin uh, as a as a first uh, indication. Uh, but then there are a number of these very interesting other uh, therapeutic uh, targets and uh, and we're, in, we're interested in as as uh, the questioner asked uh, in anorexia and Alzheimer's and PTSD and post-treatment Lyme disease all of those have their own unique rationales uh, behind them uh, uh, but they're they're aiming at the the central uh, thought that these experiences uh, can produce these enduring positive changes and really rewrite personal narrative that's around being stuck with whatever the condition is, be it addiction or, or depressive symptoms or, or whatever.:
1: And I'll add that you know the new center is certainly going to um, contribute to that um, question about treating depression, because in fact, we'll have Fred study that's looking at the combination of alcohol use disorder or alcoholism and depression and then a couple of other, other studies, the Alzheimer's study and the chronic Lyme study are going to be looking at the depressive symptoms among other symptoms that are part of those um, uh, the cluster that comes with those disorders um, and our, our previous work has very much provided one of the strongest uh, foundations um, for those two entities that Roland mentioned, you know, in moving forward with the depression indication. So we hope that sort of continues and our research, particularly in the center, will, you know, drive an entire field of research with this.
3: Yeah, just, just one further comment. So we, we actually just recently uh, completed a trial in depression, uh, and, that, and those data are looking very favorably. We expect to go to press with those uh, later. Uh, this fall. So we have contributed significantly to this database that is moving forward uh, these um, forays into medical approval. Um, But undertaking those uh, phase three trials is uh, a hugely expensive effort and that needs to be driven by uh, groups other than ourselves. Uh, But uh, we're pleased to pass the baton to them. Yeah. And, and, and grateful that they've taken it.
5: Great. Well, we have another question from Twitter from Tom Angel. Is Mr. Ferris hopeful that uh, this research that he's funding will ultimately lead to federal reclassification of psilocybin or other psychedelics? And if so, how soon?
4: It's a really good question. And it's a question I've thought quite a lot about. But um, for the sake of creating a a target for myself that is uh, perhaps uh, a a little shorter term or uh, less focused on, right? Come back to the uncrowded bedside. My my goal, so yes, the hope would be that there will be at some point reclassification uh, so that at the very least uh, the funding of science and the speed with which scientific studies can be executed uh, at lower cost Will, will really be facilitated. That's that's number one. I mean, right now, what we, well, I shouldn't speak, I'm using the royal we here, yeah. but based on, on on certainly the studies that I've looked at, the, the, the data are very, very compelling. Uh, but the, these compounds are still uh, very, very partially understood. And uh, what I would like to do, uh, and the way I think about the funding of this center is that practically, And symbolically unlocking both enthusiasm and ambition within the psychedelic field as a whole, in the U.S. and abroad, providing a proof point so that uh, people dream, meaning people, scientists, uh, dream bigger and ask for bigger things. Because I do think that we are at at the... Beginning of a tide shift where there will be much more independent funding coming in from not just individual donors but smaller foundations than hopefully some of these big brand name foundations when they recognize that there's more reputational opportunity than risk involved with a lot of these compounds. I mean the problems are so serious and so vast. And uh, granted, there are certainly risks involved with these compounds, but the toxicity profile is very very favorable. Uh, uh, my hope would be that by facilitating this, it helps pave the way for federal funding with, within the next five years, and uh, that would be a target for me. The reclassification, yes, it's something that I hope for, but it's it's not something that I can I can aim for very accurately by myself. Whereas being involved in a hands-on way with this center, uh, I, I do think. Uh, could really mark the beginning of a very uh, important, exciting, and uh, new chapter in psychedelic research.
5: Fantastic. Just, just
3: to address the specific question, what's what's the soonest uh, mm-hmm. expectation? Um, it it really is a crystal ball because there's so many different factors that go into that approval process, and ultimately, FDA needs to sh- sift through that data. But I I would guess. Uh, five-plus years before approval for a depression indication. It might become available somewhat sooner if uh, some provisions are opened up for compassionate care. Yeah. But uh, but th- this is an unknown and uncertain course as to how it uh, how it unfolds.
4: Yeah. Let me add one more thing, yeah. if I could. So another reason, coming back to the why now question, is that... Uh, is science, good science takes time, and by unlocking the full time potential of productive teams, you accelerate the timelines. These problems, like opioid addiction, are are not static. I mean, they're they are much like if you're looking at compound interest and in investments, is a good thing. These problems are also compounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a time sensitivity to addressing these things. Um, and um, that, that's another reason why I think that I feel a tremendous degree of urgency with allowing the people who are already committed to this path to dedicate their full time to um, the studies they want to be performing as opposed to uh, seeking salary support through other means, grants, and so on. Uh, and then also to invite an entire new wave and generation of, of, of scientists to consider this as a very viable and exciting path. Um, certainly, there, you know, yeah. There's an urgency. There is a time sensitivity So investment
5: this. will certainly help grow the number of experts that uh, uh, study this problem. Kayla, do we have any questions on the phone? Our next question comes from Christopher Wanjak with Live
0: Science. Please go ahead.
5: Hi. Uh, it's, it's me again, and, and I, I
2: absolutely think it's great, and I'm totally for uh, research to, in, in, in a very legitimate way to uh, learn new things of what's possible. At the same time, as I write this article, I'm very confused over the messaging. you got this on one side. Uh, this is safe, and it's, you know, it's the best experience on par with childbirth or whatever you said. And, but, oh, by the way, don't try this at home. And, and keeping in mind what, what has happened with marijuana as well and the legalization. And I was down in Florida just a couple of weeks ago, and it's being sold in tourist shops in Washington form. Uh, For any uh, any old thing. And so I just don't understand uh, how I can write a responsible message about the potential use and dangers of this when part of your message is that it's so wonderful and it's been used for so long.
1: Dr. Johnson? Well, there it might be helpful to point to some analogies. I mean, you look at some of the extreme sports, you know, extreme surfing and, uh, you know, flying with the wings, jumping off of mountains. I mean, experts, you know, die doing those things. Those are, you know, very risky activities, but you talk to those folks and they're gonna tell you, you know, they're in these flow states that are, you know, probably remarkably similar to some of the mystical experiences that we're talking about. Um, you know, we can't ignore what it is. You could say, like, that's fascinating. What is it like for someone to skydive or to, you know, surf a giant wave? Um, you can do that with, with, at the same time, telling folks, hey, you know, don't do this in risky circumstances, you know. For example, if you're not in a, you know, one of our studies or in eventual, you know, approved um, clinical use. So there are plenty of, you know, extraordinary things. I mean, the number of examples I can think of is, is, is broad, you know, travel to extreme uh, places, having, you know, many interesting experiences can have both um, indescribably, you know, uh, wonderful claimed benefits, as well as come along with extreme dangers. So, you know, we just gotta lay it all on the table and be very clear about both the benefits, when those risks are cautiously mitigated and addressed in what we are doing, and in hopefully future clinical use if the data leads us there, um, but also, you know, what the risks are out there, you know, sort of in the wild where those mechanisms aren't in place?
3: Yes, yeah, so, so let, let me just comment further on the risks. I mean, and they're very real and and uh, we have been uh, at Absolutely dedicated to communicating about those risks. So when the substances are given to carefully screen volunteers in the laboratory in our our situation, we know that we can mitigate risks. But part of that is done by screening people out who shouldn't receive these compounds. So if people have predispositional characteristics towards psychotic illness, there's concern that experience, uh, some experiences with these compounds might precipitate enduring schizophrenia like illness, which would be an absolute catastrophic outcome. Uh, And so that's a very serious outcome. Then, uh, then there are other serious outcomes that are secondary to uh, the set setting and the support that's provided. So very commonly, the bad trips of people who are taking these compounds recreationally uh, can, in extreme cases, result in engaging in panic or dangerous behavior uh, that put the individual, you know, or others um, at, at, at serious risk, uh, in, including for for death, so, uh, so we, we absolutely need to underscore that. We did a large survey study with people who had taken psilocybin um, under, in uh, unmedically supervised conditions, asking them about their very worst experience. So this isn't representative of the entire po- uh, uh, population of, of all people who've taken psilocybin, but among those people who were describing the consequences of their most challenging experiences, about 10% said that over a year later they had some kind of enduring uh, psychological difficulty. Many of whom sought out professional help for that. And so, so we, we we need to be very humble about what we don't know, and the potential serious side effects and consequences uh, if these compounds aren't administered under carefully supervised conditions.
4: May I add yeah. Yeah. And I want the uh, doctor, doctor to. Please jump in and correct me if I mess anything up. But uh, I think there are a few things worth noting. Um, From a personal perspective, uh, if if someone were to ask or insist that I put a million dollars into lobbying for or against psilocybin or mushrooms being available at every CVS, I would be against. And at the doses that we're considering, the way that I think about it, again, is uh, almost uh, if you were to consider something that is innocuous enough, to be available over-the-counter as, say, some type of Bengay or ointment that you rub on an achy knee, compared to uh, many of the studies that are being conducted, which I would consider closer to, say, a very, very uh, fascinating and effective, in many cases, form of knee surgery. You don't want to DIY your knee surgery, as useful as it might be. And the therapeutic wrapper around which these are administered are, are incredibly important. So if, if as uh, Dr. Johnson was mentioning, if, there's a, if there is a window of plasticity, the, the, the means of administration sort of determines, uh, to some extent, how that Play-Doh gets molded. And what, what, how does that plasticity then manifest itself? Uh, so so I, I'm very optimistic and excited to fund and support research. Uh, but I, I would be uh, certainly in the against camp uh, for the foreseeable future of having this available over-the-counter uh, because there are so many other conditions that are important to get right. Uh, so it's definitely impatient, not outpatient, um, f- from my perspective. And uh, one more thing, and I want you guys to, to chime in on this. My understanding of these compounds is that if you try to use them too frequently, they lose their efficacy. So there is sort of a self regulating uh, aspect to these compounds that uh, make them less likely on some level uh, to result in sort of compulsive addictive use.
1: Yeah, Our strong suspicion is exactly that, that the more frequent use, the less salience. All of our evidence suggests it's the nature of the experience, not just hitting brain receptors. It's the nature of the experience someone has during the session that predicts whether you've quit smoking, whether you have less depression and anxiety six months later, a year later. Um, So, you know, that's going to be different if someone is taking it every weekend. Uh, So I I absolutely agree. And and another point related to both what you said and what the, the, the question was, it's just this comparison to cannabis. I think one of the most important things that's understandably you know, not often seen when writing about this area of research is that this research that we and others have done has gone along a completely different trajectory um, in comparison to the medical, you know, cannabis movement. Um, in fact, we've done things and are continuing to do things exactly the way that the federal authorities have always wanted. You know, cannabis and cannabinoids to be developed. You know, um, you know, not encouraging. Um you know, uh, local initiatives, not um, encouraging medical use uh, on your own outside of um, approval by the FDA, but, but going through the FDA pathway, um, you know, phase, you know one, two, and three trials that may lead to approval. And in fact, the FDA deserves a lot of credit here in being extremely open to this research and following the data like, like we have been doing.
5: Great. I want to get back to the phone, Kayla. Are there uh, any questions waiting for us? Our next question comes from Olivia Goldhill with Quartz. Please go ahead. Hi. Yeah. Uh, just to check. Um,
0: I know. I believe the anorexia study is the first of its kind looking at um, psilocybin to treat anorexia. Are any of the others going to be the very first of its kind looking into psilocybin to treat a particular condition?
3: Uh, Yes, Uh, most of our studies are are looking at targets that haven't been investigated previously with psychedelics. So uh, anorexia is one, the Alzheimer's disease is one, PTSD hasn't been systematically investigated in modern times, opiate use disorder has not been investigated, uh, post-treatment Lyme disease has not been uh, investigated. uh, so the, uh, the range of studies that we're, uh, we're gonna undertake are all looking at novel uh, interventions.
5: Great, uh, we have a question from Twitter, from Kyle Yeager from Marijuana Moment, which is syndicated by the Boston Globe. Is this a new facility or an expansion of an existing department? Can you talk a little bit more about how your program is growing?
3: So we have been conducting research with psilocybin at Johns Hopkins for now almost uh, 20 years. We're located within uh, a, a group uh, within the Department of Psychiatry, the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, uh, and, um, and we've been doing that, uh, splicing together uh, resources from some uh, small number of federal Uh, sources but mostly from philanthropy but all of the center faculty in fact are are individuals who came through our postdoctoral training program are committed to this uh, uh, area of research and have moved on to faculty appointments within our department so the center exists within the framework of the existing Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Johns Hopkins with uh, with a lot of support from our our uh, director, J- Dr. Jimmy Potash. Uh, but yet it's a, a new center, a configuration within that department. So we do have a center. We are the uh, Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation are providing funds to renovate our areas. So we'll be uh, centrally and co-located um, uh, so we we do we will hold the status within the university as a center, which is a, a significant uh, within the organization of of university structures. So it's both completely new and more of the same,
5: and remodeled.
3: And remodeled. And, excellent,
5: Kayla. Are there other questions on the phone? Our next question comes from Melissa Healy
0: with Los Angeles Times. Please go ahead. Hi,
5: thanks for taking my question.
0: Um, I wonder if you would expand a little bit on the, uh, on the proposed uh, clinical trial regarding uh,
1: opioid uh, the, the use of uh, psilocybin for opioid use uh, disorder and maybe address some of the often raised uh, ethical issues of using drugs that are associated with abuse for the treatment of addiction. I mean, since, since the two are, after all, generally linked. Uh, and and just a
0: quick follow up, uh, I, I wonder also whether, in addition to any clinical trials um, uh, linked to or using psilocybin as the um, as the agent in question, whether you will be looking into any uh, therapeutic uses of uh, other psychedelics, including MDMA or LSD or or, or others.
1: Right. Um. So your question is a great one, and it's one of the most um, widely—it's—it's it's a common question, and—and and there's a really good answer to it. The first part about you know using a, a drug of abuse to treat addiction, you know, sounds dangerous. The most important thing to realize is that psilocybin is not a drug of addiction. You know, that means that it, it does not lead to compulsive drug use. No one is jonesing for their next psilocybin fix. Um, there are people that use it in ways that are dangerous and using psychiatric language, we would call that abuse, use in a dangerous way. A really obvious example is driving while, while on the substance or, or use in a way that's interfering with their, you know, their family responsibilities, um, et cetera. But we know squarely it's not a drug of addiction in terms of its effects on the brain reward system, in terms of the large-scale surveys, in terms of very reliable animal models of drug self-administration. So it's not a so-called substitution treatment, which in fact is one of the biggest um, forms of addiction medicine. So think methadone in treating opioid addiction, or think the nicotine patch in treating cigarette smoking. Nothing against those treatments. Those are important tools in the toolbox, but in fact, um, even though they help some people and do better than placebo, they leave far more room for improvement. You know, They don't help the large majority of people who uh, initially engage in those forms of treatment. So it's, it's nice that psilocybin is not going to be a, used in a compulsive, addictive fashion by people who are exposed to it one or a few times in these types of uh, studies. Um, and we, ha- we have never seen evidence of people being exposed um, to psilocybin in studies who go on to u- have some sort of compulsive you know, um, drug use pattern um, in, uh, in using psilocybin. So we actually think, compared to things that are commonly done in addiction medicine, methadone itself is addictive, nicotine itself is addictive and other psychiatric med there are all kinds of addictive psychiatric medications, from the sleeping drugs to um, amphetamine, which is Adderall and other ADHD drugs. Um, it's really nice that psilocybin is, in fact not an addictive drug.
3: And, and if I can just address the question about other substances, so the center application as it was, Conceived is focusing in on psilocybin because that's the compound that we know. But um, indeed, there are, are variations in psychedelics that are of deep interest to us. We actually have also run uh, studies with salvinorin A, uh, which is a, a kappa opioid short acting hallucinogen. Uh, we've also looked at dextromethorphan, which is an NMDA antagonist. Uh, similar to ketamine. Uh, We envision a future of this research, be it in our center or other academic centers, which will absolutely explore the range of these compounds because psilocybin is simply the opening foray here. And if, if we really think about the opportunity to explore radical behavior change and investigation of the nature of conscious experience, uh, we should look at all the tools in the toolbox.
1: And, and the really cool thing about this field is that thanks to chemists like David Nichols and Alexander Shulgin, there are literally hundreds of psychedelic compounds, all of which have slight variations in terms of which receptors they hit and in, you know how strongly they hit and different receptor profiles in the brain. So we have an absolute library that can be tested, you know, um, but we're moving cautiously with the one that we know most about and the most safety data on.
5: All right, we have one from Twitter from Boca Can. What other similar research is happening in the United States currently?
3: Well, there are, uh, since we initiated this work, there are a number of academic centers now that have gone online and it's just very gratifying to see this, uh, uh, this whole area of research expand. So uh, New York University has uh, studies going on. Uh, they, they conducted a key study along with us in cancer patients. They're doing a study uh, now in uh, psilocybin treatment of alcohol use disorder. University of Alabama is doing a study on psilocybin treatment of cocaine dependence. A group up in uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison, is undertaking early studies of looking at interactions between psilocybin and, uh, and buprenorphine uh, treatment for opiate dependence. Uh, there's a group out in San Francisco, UCSF, uh, that's investigating palliative effects of uh, psilocybin in, in individuals who are under psychological distress because of uh, HIV uh, diagnoses uh, and I, I've probably left off a few centers but this is a burgeoning uh, field of study but it's, it's limited in each of those cases uh, by lack of resources and lack of funding and I and just I just want to return to that so our our work and and much of this work has been uh, historically funded by the private sector. The Hefter Research Institute, which is a, a group that was founded by uh, Dave Nichols, has been foundational in providing some of this support. And But it's, it's usually a uh, r- relatively uh, minor level or small level of support, but they're seeding these projects at different academic institutions but with that seeding, then becomes excitement and commitment uh, on part of those investigators and i don't doubt that that's going to continue to expand
1: and all you know the the folks that roland mentioned along with charlie grobe at ucla who's also done work in this area these are you know great collaborators that that, um, that you know we learn from each other and there's been a number of collaborations um, but important you know, also that all of those groups are, you know, have operated the way we have in sort of cobbling together resources and, and, you know, unfortunately haven't had center level funding, so they haven't constituted, you know, centers. So our hope is that in the future that, you know, true centers will be disseminated in, in these and other groups.
5: So I think we're just about at time. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank you to our guests today for coming together and telling us about this exciting news. And we'll call it a wrap. Have a great day, everyone.
4: it out. Just go to 4hourworkweek.com. That's 4hourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.